In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a life therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash gold. The Peter Schiff Show. I wanted to take some time and record a special podcast today, really having nothing to do with the markets and the economy and just focusing on a topic that I haven't discussed in, in quite some time. Although I do believe that the, the politics surrounding this event are relevant to the economy and to the markets because it really is setting in motion or has set in motion uh, political winds that are blowing the country in a direction that is very detrimental to the U.S. economy and to the markets. Because I think it was 2012 uh, when the Trayvon Martin story really took off uh, in the United States. And you know, if you remember, George Zimmerman is the person who uh, killed Trayvon Martin. And initially, you know, everybody was quick to believe the completely ridiculous sounding story uh, that was basically being perpetrated by the Martin family and their attorney as to what happened and the circumstances surrounding the death of, of Trayvon Martin. And I was one of the earlier people who came out and I was defending George Zimmerman. And, you know, I took a lot of heat back then initially because people were saying, hey, it's racist for me to be defending George Zimmerman. But the reality was I thought it was racist for the people to have believed the complete nonsense, a, a, a ridiculous story uh, about what happened. It made a lot more sense to me, just judging by the facts, Right, not looking at the races of the individuals or any of that, just judging by the facts, George Zimmerman's version of events 
made sense. The, the other version made no sense at all. I think it was the racists who were so quick to dismiss uh, George Zimmerman's version, which, you know, made sense. It was supported by all the evidence and other witness testimony that came out, rather than simply believing the parents of Trayvon Martin or their lawyer because they happen to be black. Right. I, you know, I don't judge people. Uh, based on their skin color or their their sex. The same thing happened with the Kavanaugh hearings where, oh, here's a woman making an allegation. Well, we must believe this person because she's a victim and she's a woman. Well, why? Why believe somebody just because they happen to be a woman? Why believe somebody just because they happen to be African-American? Believe something if it's credible. And if it's not credible, well, then you got to call it out. And so I was willing to call out the fact that I thought George Zimmerman was innocent of the allegations that were being leveled against him. And I think other people were afraid to say that, even though they might have thought it, they were afraid because the idea is that if somebody alleges something, if somebody who's black says something happened and then you doubt them, well, then you're a racist, too. How dare you not believe this person? You must not believe them because they're black. No, I don't believe them because their story makes no sense. Their story is unbelievable. The same thing happened uh, with Jesse Smollett. I didn't think Jesse Smollett was lying because he was black. I thought he was lying because the story made no sense whatsoever. It was a complete nonsense. The people who were so quick to believe that nonsense, they're the racists. They wouldn't have believed anything like that if a white person had said it. But because Jesse said it, who was he was a double victim. He was black and he was a homosexual. So you really had to believe him. But anyway, the reason that I'm talking about this again is because uh, George Zimmerman is in the news again. And the reason he's in the news is because he filed a $100 million lawsuit against uh, the lawyer who represented the Martin family, uh, the Trayvon Martin family, his, well, his his biological mother and his biological father, uh, a couple of witnesses or a witnesses, and, uh, you know, the prosecution and the state of Florida for basically perpetrating a hoax, right? And the reason I'm really talking about it is the the way the media is covering this again, all over again, they're doing the same thing, right? They're writing all these stories and you can read them online if you, you know, you Google George uh, Zimmerman, all these stories about how dare this guy. I mean, he already got away with murder and now he's victimizing the uh, murder victim's family all over again. How dare he? The nerve of this guy. This just proves he's such a low life, you know, person, right? They're just they're just hanging him all over again. And none of these articles that I've read, and there's numerous articles about this lawsuit, none of them actually discuss the merits of the lawsuit, like why this lawsuit is here. Instead, they're attacking Zimmerman. They're attacking his lawyer. But they're ignoring the actual basis for the lawsuit, which are new facts that have just come to light, right? That were just discovered that George Zimmerman did not have until they were brought to his attention by a filmmaker, a guy by the name of Joel Gilbert, who just came out with a documentary. It's a two-hour documentary, The Trayvon Hoax. He also has a book with the same title. You can get a copy of the uh, of the of the movie and the book on Amazon, or you can go to uh, thetrayvonhoax.com and you can rent it. You can buy a copy. I've already watched it. In fact, I've watched it twice. I haven't read the uh, the book yet, but he makes not just a compelling case. I would say an irrefutable case 
that there was witness fraud perpetrated, knowingly perpetrated by the Martin family at this trial in an attempt to frame an innocent man for murder. Now, nobody wants to deal with that reality. And I'm talking about, again, I talked to the producer, Joel Gilbert. I'm going to be doing a special uh, interview with him for the podcast. I'm going to make it on video as well for YouTube. And I'm going to do that next week. And so I, you know, in advance of that, though, I want to give everybody the heads up that it's coming. Go out, go to the website, thetrayvonhoax.com, and watch this film. So you would have watched the film before uh, you hear this interview that I'm going to do with the guy who uh, produced it and uncovered this hoax. But I want to kind of go over a little bit of the facts now, so I won't have to do that uh, during the interview. I have some other things I want to discuss with, with with Joel Gilbert, but I want to kind of just go over the facts again in case some people don't remember it. And I want to go over uh, the evidence that was uncovered by this film. And then again, don't take my word for it. After you listen to this podcast, go immediately to the TrayvonHoax.com and, and get a copy of, of the movie and, and either rent it or buy it. But anyway, so if you recall, the way the narrative was originally framed in the media was that a white racist, right, George Zimmerman, right, stalked and murdered a black child, a boy who was on his way home. He was carrying some Skittles and some iced tea. But the reason that he was profiled by this white racist, right, was because he was wearing a hoodie, right? And so it was, you know, just racial profiling and he was killed because he was black and it's open season on blacks so and we need to punish uh, this white racist uh, for this racist act, right? And that was initially what the media believed, right? And, and then even as the facts started to come out slowly, right, to completely contradict this narrative, everybody kind of held steadfast, to, to, to their initial uh, belief, right? Because it turned out, right, that George Zimmerman wasn't a racist. In fact, he wasn't even white, right? He turned out that he was Hispanic. I mean, he had a last name Zimmerman because his father was of German descent, but his mother was Hispanic. And he looks Hispanic. He identifies Hispanic. He speaks Spanish. So he's not really white, right? But, you know, so then, all right, that didn't stop the media. They decided to call him a white Hispanic, right? So they can keep the word white in there. Right. As if, you know, they never called President Barack Obama a white African-American. I mean, he's half white, but no, no, he got to be a full African-American. But Zimmerman, since he did a bad thing, well, he must at least be half white. So he became known as a white Hispanic. I'd never really heard uh, that term before. But also, you know, he was five foot nine. He wasn't a very physically intimidating person. He was overweight, out of shape. And he wasn't a uh, MAGA guy. Right. He was a liberal Democrat. The guy had a history of advocating for black uh, causes or African-Americans, and he was a mentor, a big brother to African-American teenage boys. So clearly nothing the way he was originally portrayed. But that didn't that didn't change anything about the media's call to, you know, try him and convict him. He's a racist. He's, you know, really a bad person. And then, of course, we get to find out slowly more information about about Trayvon Martin, because initially they circulated a picture of Trayvon when he was 10 years old, and oh, he looks so cute. How could anybody murder this cute little boy? Well, it turns out that that little boy had grown up, and he was a 17-year-old young man, right? Six feet tall, in good shape, very athletic. And, you know, they also had a lot of information about him. Uh, He had been expelled from school uh, several times for violence, for fighting, 
right? He was a tough guy. He was a fighter. He fancied himself a gangsta. That's how he called himself. They had his cell phone. They had all the tweets with him and his friends. And, you know, he was a fan of fighting. He, you know, world star, you know, this website with lots of street fights. He was watching a lot of those. He had them on his phone. His older brother had texted him, hey, Trayvon, when are you going to teach me how to fight? I mean, you're a good fighter when your older brother wants you to teach you how to fight. He talked about his fights. He bragged about him. One guy in particular, he bragged about beating up. He beat up the snitch, right? Uh, but he said that he's not done beating him up because he hasn't bled enough yet. He wants to go beat him up some more because he only bled from his nose. And so he was a, a violent kid, not necessarily a bad kid, uh, you know, but, you know, he was he, he was a fighter and he was proficient with his fists and, and he was a good fighter. And then the evidence that came out basically was overwhelming in that this was a case of self-defense, right? It was not the way it was originally framed. In fact, there was an eyewitness Right? The only eyewitness who was there, who lived in the community, who actually heard the screams and opened up the door to see what was going on. He testified at the time that Trayvon Martin, the black man, was on top, Zimmerman was lying on the bottom, and that uh, Trayvon was raining down blows on him, MMA style, as uh, George Zimmerman was screaming for help and no help was coming. This guy actually saw this. And, of course, all of that was consistent with the forensic evidence. George Zimmerman had a broken nose. right? He had bruises on his face. He had lacerations on the back of his head from where Trayvon had been pounding his head on the pavement. The only bruises that Martin had, other than the single gunshot wound, the only bruises on his entire body were on his knuckles. Right. I mean, so clearly there was an open and shut case here. There was no doubt. Right. That what happened? And that's why the police initially said, hey, we're not going to prosecute itself. The defense. There's no crime. Right. But as soon as that happened, everybody was up in arms. Oh, how dare this guy get off? They didn't want to admit that their rush to judgment was wrong. So they just dug in their heels. And they were just as convinced as ever that this white Hispanic racist murdered this little boy, right? Even though clearly that was not the case. So then what happened is the attorney for the Trayvon Martin family came out. This is a couple of weeks later. And all of a sudden, he's located the girlfriend of Trayvon Martin. And Trayvon Martin's girlfriend just happened to be on the phone with Trayvon Martin moments before uh, he was attacked by George Zimmerman, right? She was on the phone with him. The phone records show that, Zimmer, that that Trayvon was on the phone and he was talking to his girlfriend. And she recorded a, a statement with, with this attorney. And her statement basically contradicted all of the evidence, all the testimony, and basically validated the false narrative that, that Zimmerman was the aggressor. He chased down and stalked Trayvon. He beat Trayvon. Uh, Trayvon was afraid, trying to get away. And, and Zimmerman killed him in cold blood, right? That, I mean, that was basically what they were trying to claim, right? And so according to the attorney at the time, he located the girlfriend. He didn't want to give out her name because she was a minor. She was a 16-year-old minor. Uh, but, you know, she basically blows away, according to the lawyer, the idea that it was self-defense. And, and, and based largely, almost entirely really on that, uh, and plus, you know, the mother claimed that 
the, the person screaming that it, it was Trayvon, even though the father had said it wasn't Trayvon. And the eyewitness clearly identified uh, Martin uh, as the one who was being beaten and who was screaming. But based on that and mostly based on the the on the record statement uh, of this woman, that's why he was charged. And in fact, initially, of course, the police didn't just you know take it based on the recording. Right. They wanted to actually meet and depose uh, the girlfriend and actually talk to her and, and get her statement officially, not just uh, for a, uh, a, a, an audio from the attorney. And this is where the host comes in. This is what uh, the film really uncovers, which is amazing. And this is what happened. So, yes, Trayvon Martin was, in fact, on the phone with his girlfriend. And who was 16 years old. In fact, he spent about four or five hours, according to the phone records, on the phone with her that day. And, uh, you know, they shared over 30 text messages with each other that day on the phone. And her name happens to be Brittany Diamond Eugene. And she goes by her middle name, Diamond. So everybody refers to her as Diamond, not Brittany. But her legal name is Brittany Diamond Eugene, uh, but um, her actual name is, is Diamond. And so the police wanted to speak to Diamond. And they had her address, right? So they drove to the house where Diamond lived. And when they got there, though, they were told that Diamond wasn't home to go to some other address. And so the, they, they then went to another address and they knocked on the door and they were introduced to a young woman whose name was uh, Rachel Jantel, who was not 16, but who was 18 years old. And Rachel Jantel said, oh, I'm, I'm Diamond Eugene. That's my nickname, right? People call me Diamond Eugene, but my real name is Rachel Jantel. And so the police then uh, interviewed and took the statement from Rachel Jantel claiming to be Diamond Eugene. But the problem is she wasn't Diamond Eugene. There actually was a real Diamond Eugene who lived at the very address that the police initially went to, who was the same age as the lawyer claimed she was. In fact, if you listen to the audio that uh, was recorded by the lawyer of the 16-year-old the real Diamond Eugene, it sounds nothing like the audio that you hear from the 18-year-old uh, Rachel Gentel. And what Joel Gilbert uncovered is these women, girls, were actually half-sisters. So what probably happened, and you can tell from the cell phone records that were examined, is the family and friends were putting a lot of pressure on the 16-year-old uh, Diamond Eugene to give false testimony about what happened because she was on the phone and so she could say whatever she wanted, right? Because nobody knows, right? I mean, hey, whatever you say, you're going to be believed. So just, just this is what you're going to say. This is the narrative. You're going to talk about this. And she was reluctant to do that for obvious reasons. Uh, but eventually uh, she gave in after a lot of pressure and she did record this, uh, this statement, which was clearly rehearsed and you know where the lawyer pretty much led her the entire time. And she repeated the talking points that they had been spreading. But then of course, when the police actually wanted her to go on record to uh, swear under penalty of perjury, she backed out. She didn't want to do it for whatever reason. Maybe she just didn't want to lie 
or she didn't want to go public. You know, she was two-timing Trayvon prominently at the time. She had another boyfriend, and probably she didn't want this other boyfriend to know that she was also dating Trayvon Martin. So whatever reason, she did not want to go on record. She did not want to give this false testimony. So the Martin family and their lawyer, they obviously had to figure out something to do. And so they decided, since the real... Uh, Diamond Eugene was not going to testify. Well, they just would put up an imposter, a fake Diamond Eugene, her half-sister. Plus, also, you have to think about it from this perspective. If the statements made by uh, Diamond Eugene's half-sister, right, if that storyline was actually what happened, right, and if uh, Trayvon's girlfriend heard all the things that they claim that she heard, why wouldn't she want to testify about that? I mean, if it was honest, if she wasn't going to commit perjury, I mean, of course she would want to testify. Wouldn't she want to be instrumental in locking up the murderer of her boyfriend? I mean, even if she had two boyfriends, she obviously cared about Trayvon. I mean, she would want justice for Trayvon. I mean, all these people who never even knew Trayvon wanted justice. Why wouldn't his own girlfriend want justice for Trayvon. The only reason it makes sense that she did not want to testify is because it was a lie. She knew it was a lie. Number one, she didn't want to risk uh, perjury and, and committing a crime, right? And she didn't want to be under the spotlight telling a lie. And she was concerned that, you know, she might be found out. But also, yes, she did have another boyfriend and she didn't want to risk losing that relationship for a lie, to tell a lie, to go out and pretend that something happened that she knew didn't happen. I mean, she probably knew that Trayvon was looking for a fight because he probably told her, hey, honey, I'm going to go beat the shit out of this guy. I'll call you back after I'm done kicking his ass. Right. That's that's probably what he said or words to that effect. And so she was not going to risk going to prison herself. She was not going to risk losing her other relationship to tell a lie. So she backed out. And so they had to find somebody else who was dumb enough to do it. And, and that's exactly what they did. And then, you know, so the half-sister uh, gave this statement that was a complete lie. She pretended that she was on the phone with Trayvon Martin when she was not. She pretended that she was his girlfriend when she was not. And everybody allowed her to go on the stand and give this testimony. And this is a complete fraud, right? How could George Zimmerman not be outraged to find out the truth about what happened? Sure, yes. He was acquitted. Ultimately, their plan to frame him didn't work. But this false narrative really took hold. I mean, the guy's life has been ruined, right? He can't can't get a job. I mean, who's going to hire George Zimmerman? I mean, I mean, that's can you imagine how disruptive that's going to be to your business if he's working for you? No one's going to date him. How do you bring George Zimmerman to a party? Home to your friend. Here's my boyfriend, George Zimmerman. I mean, this guy's life has been ruined. I mean, I'm surprised he's even still living in the country. But the, again, the amazing thing is that there is no coverage being given to what happened. And there is no doubt in my mind right, that this happened. There's no doubt in my mind that the woman who testified and pretended to be Diamond Eugene was not Diamond Eugene. I mean, first of all, what's the odds that a woman right, whose name is uh, Rachel Jantel, what's the odds that her nickname is Diamond Eugene? 
I mean, come on, they're not even close. And what's the odds that her nickname is the same as the actual name of her half-sister? So, I mean, when they're all together, do they are they both Diamond Eugene, right? They have the exact same name, right? Her nickname is the same as the other name. But it's more than just that, right? If you look at all the evidence that was put together in the film, first of all, right, the real Diamond Eugene actually lives at the address the police went to. They had the address for Diamond Eugene. She lives there. The fake... Diamond Eugene lived at a completely different address, right? The real Diamond is actually 16. That's how old she was supposed to be. That's how old the Martin attorney said his girlfriend was. This other fake one was 18 years old. Now, when they interviewed the fake Diamond Eugene, they asked her about her cell phone. And this is really where you see how intricate the plan was, because what they did is they took the phone number, the cell phone number from the real diamond, and they ported it over to a brand new phone that they bought, and they gave it to this fake diamond so she can actually have the cell phone. And so the police asked her, is this cell phone that you have, is it in your own name? And the way she answers, she says, well, it should be in my name by now. I mean, could you imagine that? It should be in my name by now, implying that it wasn't in her name until very recently, right? She actually let that slip, that it was just recently put in her name. Now, the police asked her, right? This is during the initial interview. Did you text message with Trayvon Martin, right, the day of, of the murder? And she said, yes, we did text. And the police asked her, how many texts? And her reply was one, one text. Now, I already mentioned that there were over 30 text messages that day between Trayvon and his actual girlfriend, right, Diamond. There are over 30 messages. Now, obviously, she's not Diamond. I mean, how could you confuse 30 for one, right? I can you know, get it that, okay, nobody knows exactly how many texts they sent to somebody on a given day. But if you sent 30, that's a lot of texts. I mean, I've never texted somebody, I don't think, 30 times in one day. Maybe I have. I don't know. But that would be a lot of texts to send one individual in one day. And yes, no one's going to remember the exact amount. But if somebody asked her, hey, how many texts did you send? Maybe she's, I don't know, 40, 20. I mean, there'd be some large number. There is no way she would say one. That is impossible if she was the real diamond. And of course, if she really was Trayvon Martin's girlfriend and, uh, her, her boyfriend had just died a couple of weeks earlier, whatever it was, and she was the last person to talk to him, and these are the last texts that they ever exchanged. Don't you think she would have spent some time in her morning, you know, going over those text messages, the last words of my beloved Trayvon who was murdered, right? She would be looking. She would have some idea, even if she forgot <laughs> that she sent more than one text message that day. So another obvious uh, lie. She was also asked... Uh, the name of the uh, the cell phone provider. She she got it wrong. I mean, how many people have a cell phone and don't know who the carrier is? She she got it wrong. She couldn't even get the weather right. I mean, during the interview with the 16 year old Diamond, the the recorded interview with uh, with the lawyer, Diamond said that it was raining hard. That's how she described the weather. But then when the police asked the fake Diamond what was the weather like, she says it wasn't raining. I mean, come on, either raining hard and not raining at all, just another contradiction among many that they had to overlook. But probably the most obvious part of this, right, that takes away any shadow of a doubt, is that when uh, Trayvon Martin's cell phone records are examined, because they're all there, the police have them, 
you see all the photographs. Not only do you see all the text messages uh, that were exchanged between the real Diamond Eugene and Trayvon Martin, but Diamond sent photographs of herself to Trayvon Martin. They're on his phone. And the photos are of the actual Diamond Eugene. There is not a single photo of Rachel Gentel on Trayvon Martin's phone. And of course, the other thing is, these women don't even look anything alike. I mean, yes, they're both black, uh, but the actual girlfriend is a pretty girl. She's very sexy. It's obvious to see uh, why Trayvon was attracted to her, right? Especially if you look at his other girlfriends. I mean, this guy was a player. You know, he had a lot of girls, you know, before Diamond. And he was a good-looking guy. He was a handsome kid, right? And so he was able to get uh, good-looking girls. And Diamond was one of those girls, right? And you can see in, in the text, Jantel, Rachel Jantel, there's nothing physically attractive about her at all. I mean, she's her fa- she's not pretty, and she's enormous. She's very overweight. She's let's just she's fat. Is as politically incorrect as it is to call somebody fat. She's fat, you know. Because I actually remember when I saw her testify originally. I mean, I was convinced she was lying. In fact, you can go back and look at my YouTube video uh, from the Peter Schiff show, uh, where I titled it, you know, "The Perjury of This Witness," and I said she's completely lying. How can anyone believe her? She's contradicting herself. What she's saying doesn't make sense. She doesn't even want to be there. She, she, she's clearly upset about being uh, on the stand, right? They asked her to read a letter that she supposedly wrote. She couldn't even read it because it was in script, which means obviously she didn't write it. So then it was claimed that it was dictated to her, but it was signed, right? The letter was actually signed uh, Diamond Eugene. And they asked her, well, why did you sign a Diamond Eugene? Why did not you use your real name? She said, well, I signed it with my nickname. <laughs> but then, of course, in the film, right, they have a handwriting expert who analyzed that and said it is impossible. There is no possible way that uh, Rachel Gentel could have signed Diamond Eugene the way it was signed. So she lied about signing it. But at the time, right, when I saw the witness and knew she was lying, I mean, I, I, mean, I, I didn't believe that. It was a plant. I mean, I assume she was on the phone with Trayvon, right? That she actually was a girlfriend of, of Trayvon Martin or somehow. But it never made sense to me why Trayvon would have a girlfriend that was so unattractive, that was so overweight. I mean, that I mean, I didn't talk about it at the time because I didn't think it was relevant because, you know, I thought she was who she claimed to be. But it just didn't make sense to me that a young, handsome guy uh, would be interested in in uh, a woman like like Rachel Gentel. Uh, well, he wasn't. He did, you know, he did. He barely even knew Rachel Gentel. I don't know if he knew her at all. He was interested in Diamond Eugene. Diamond Eugene was his girlfriend. Now, who knows what he actually told Diamond Eugene on that telephone call? Because he was, in fact, talking to her the moments before the encounter. My bet is he probably told her something like, "I'm going to go kick this guy's ass." You know, and that's probably what he told her. And she probably thought that he was going to kick his ass because he's an ass kicker. And she did get nervous when she didn't hear from him again, when they stopped calling. And so she was worried that something happened. But I'm sure that if she told the truth, she would corroborate George Zimmerman's version of events, just like all the the other uh, evidence, all the witnesses were able to do. Uh, And so she basically just disappeared until this a movie, this uh, book, and this documentary brings this to light. So despite the fact that we now have pretty much a bulletproof case as far as I'm concerned, not only 
of George Zimmerman's innocence, right, but of the plot to frame him, right, that involved the parents of George Zimmerman. I mean, they clearly knew, right, that the, the witness was not Diamond Eugene, was not on the phone with Trayvon, and was not his girlfriend. The lawyer knew that, who originally interviewed the 16-year-old and who put forth that 18-year-old of a different name. I mean, the question is, did the prosecutors know it, or should they have known it? George Zimmerman has a fantastic lawsuit against this family. Yet the media is ignoring all of this evidence and they're sticking to and doubling down on this narrative. Look, as far as I'm concerned, the lawyer, at a, at a minimum, he needs to be disbarred. But more than that, he needs to be put in jail for subordination of perjury. You cannot put a witness on the stand, A, that you know that's going to lie, but they're even lying about who they are and you know that? I mean, how unethical and illegal can you be? They tried to frame a guy for murder. He could have been in jail for 20 years or 30 years. This lawyer needs to be in jail. The parents of Trayvon Martin, the motherfucker, they need to go to jail, right? There needs to be prosecution for this type of crime, for this type of perjury. This is way worse than Jussie Smollett, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, yeah, they both lied to the police, but Jussie didn't try to frame an innocent person, right? I mean, maybe you could say later on he tried to claim that maybe it was uh, the uh, these Nigerian brothers. But initially, I don't even know who attacked me, right? But here you're trying to frame an innocent man of a crime you know he did not commit, right? And they have profited dramatically. Yes, I feel for the Martins because they lost their child, right? But they have to do some self-reflection on why they lost their child why he was so troubled, why he was so violent, why he ended up in a position where George Zimmerman, a guy who is clearly not a racist at all and who feels very badly for having been put in a position where he had to shoot uh, Trayvon Martin, the parents raised him to put himself in their position. They're the, they're the reason that Trayvon is dead, not George Zimmerman, not a racist society, but they need to be prosecuted too. They need to go to jail for what they did because we need to send a message that we are not a racist society, that black people are held to the same standards as white people, right? You can't just excuse this and say, well, they're black, so it's okay if they commit fraud, if they commit perjury, if they try to frame somebody. That's all okay because, you know, they're African-American, right? So let's give them a pass. No, I don't want to give somebody a pass because they're African-American. I want to treat African-Americans just the way we treat white Americans. Can you imagine if George Zimmerman were black, right? And the parents of some white kid tried to frame him for murder with a white attorney. And they did exactly what, what the Martins did or whatever, you know, the, the mother has a different last name. But if they did whatever what Trayvon's parents did, they, everybody would be calling for, for, for these guys to go to jail. Right. It would all be about justice for George. Right. There was justice for Trayvon. What about justice for George? Where's his justice? Just getting acquitted isn't justice enough. He needs his name to be cleared. He needs to get his life back. The media needs to apologize for the rush to judgment because to do otherwise is racist. To give Trayvon's parents a pass, to give the lawyer a pass. That is racism. That is a double standard that needs to end. See, the country is not as racist as the liberals want you to believe.
right? That's what they don't want you to know. They don't want uh, African-Americans to know that racism isn't the reason they're, they're in trouble. It's because of the welfare state. It's because of their own democratic politicians that they've been electing over and over again, who are trying to fe- scare them into voting Democrat by creating a false picture that they have to fear these, you know, white racist vigilantes who are out shooting black kids in hoodies, carrying candy. That is not the narrative. That's true, but that's what uh, everybody wants you to believe, which is why this story, I guess, is so scary. The media is afraid to admit that they were wrong. They're afraid to tell the truth. Individuals are afraid to come out because, again, as I said earlier, anybody who defends Zimmerman is going to be accused of being a racist. Anybody who calls out Trayvon Martin's parents as liars, well, you're a racist. You're a racist for defending them when it's obvious. I, I defy anybody to disprove anything in this movie. And, you know, a lot of people obviously had to cover this up and say nothing, right? Because obviously friends and family members know that Rachel Jantel's nickname is not Diamond Eugene, right? They know that. And they know that she was not the girlfriend of Trayvon Martin. And people know the real Diamond Eugene. And they know, you know, friends of Trayvon obviously knew that he was dating Diamond. He didn't keep it a secret. So there are other people out there that know the truth. They need to come forward. Somebody needs to come forward and fess up. Now, you know, I don't think the real Brittany uh, Diamond Eugene, I don't think she should be prosecuted. A, she was a 16-year-old. She was a minor at the time. And she never actually committed perjury. She refused to do that. Right? At least she had enough honor not to want to lie under oath or lie in front of a jury. But she has kept this secret. She has known about it. She knew about the lie. So she's kind of an accomplice to this. But, you know, I would give her a pass on that. Also, the the Jantel, Rachel Jantel, I mean, she is a very, you know, low intelligent. I mean, she, you know, she was barely literate. I think she was reading and writing maybe at a fourth grade level. And so she was only 18. Yes, she was technically no longer a minor, but 18, you're still pretty young. And I think she was manipulated by the lawyer. I think she was manipulated by the parents. I don't know, maybe her half-sister played a role in it as well. But I don't think she really knew what she was doing. In fact, one of the ironies is, and you'll see this when you watch the film, is that during the official interview right, with the, the police, kind of towards the end of the interview, she's like looking down and she says, I feel guilty. I feel really guilty. And um, the guy says, well, why are you guilty? What do you feel guilty about? She says, I I don't know about it. I don't know anything. As if she's actually confessing that she actually doesn't know anything about the situation. She doesn't know anything about what happened that night uh, with Trayvon Martin and, and George Zimmerman because she wasn't on the phone with him. In fact, they asked her, are you Trayvon Martin's girlfriend at, in that interview? And she said no. So she told the truth about that. She says, I'm not Trayvon Martin's girlfriend, but she was described as being uh, his girlfriend. And if you certainly look at the text messages uh, that they were sending and the hours, I mean, you don't spend four or five hours a day on the phone with somebody every single day if it's not your girlfriend. I mean, you don't have all kinds of texts about about having sex or about body parts. If you look at all the, the texts that they were sharing, they were sexting each other. They were sending each other pictures, right? They were clearly boyfriend and girlfriend. Yes, maybe she was cheating on him because she had two boyfriends, but Trayvon was one of her boyfriends. The other boyfriend was another guy. They didn't know about each other, but they were both in love, infatuated with Diamond. You know, the other boyfriend was also a very handsome young man. 
one of the things that Joel Gilbert did in the documentary is he tracked down the Twitter accounts, their Facebook pages, their Instagram accounts that he was able to put together from the names on the contacts from the, the texts and everything from both Trayvon Martin and the real diamond. And, and, and this other guy is handsome. And, and so there's no way that uh, Rachel Jantel, right, the fake diamond, overweight, unattractive uh, Rachel Jantel, right? There's no way that she could even have one really attractive guy who had the hots for her, let alone two. <laughs> but of course, the real uh, diamond, sure, she could probably juggle her third if she wanted. She was a very vivacious, attractive girl that could, you know, command the attention uh, from young men. But that is not um, Rachel Jantel, not by a long shot. Uh, and so everything about this, right, about the fake diamond, right, it's all been exposed. There is no other explanation. So what is George Zimmerman supposed to do, right, not file a lawsuit? Why is the media not coming out and exposing this? I mean, this is, this is a huge fraud. This was a huge hoax perpetrated on the entire nation. And here it is in black and white or in, in video, right, in color, an irrefutable case of a massive fraud, a massive hoax on the legal system, on the American public. And the media just buries it and pretends it doesn't exist. All they're talking about is, hey, let's impeach Donald Trump. Hey, you know, what about locking up the people who put the country through this? I mean, yeah, I mean, you can say, hey, Black Lives Matter all happened because of this lie, you know, the Ferguson effect, what happened with Michael Brown, all this stuff happened because of this lie. So let's tell the truth. Finally, let the truth come out. Let the media do a little self-reflection. Anyway, I am going to have, as I said, a Joel Gilbert, I'm going to be interviewing him and really have a good discussion about, about this film. Not so much uh, the, the proof, because I've already laid that out and you'll see that for yourself. But there's a lot more that I think ne we need to discuss uh, with respect to this subject than just the excellent job that he did bringing out a truth that should have been out years ago, that the police should have brought out but didn't. And it took a guy like Joel Gilbert on his own to actually spend the time uh, doing the research to uncover this massive fraud. 